some things in this world last longer than others. Some things in this world last longer than others. When we're thinking about investing in something, we invest in things that we think have a future. Things that we think will stand the test of time. Things like real estate or precious metals. Or as COVID-19 taught us, companies that produce necessities like toilet paper. We invest in things that we think have a future. Some things, though, aren't worth investing in because they don't have a future. Things like DVDs and CDs. Does anyone still have those things? I do. Sweet. Oh, several of us. Some things aren't worth investing in because they have no future. They're going away. Things like crypto. I, don't even, I know nothing about crypto, so don't email me about crypto, please. I know nothing. Some things aren't worth, worth investing in because they have no future. I could throw the Dallas Cowboys in there, but anyways. <laughs> There's, there are some things that have no future, so it would be pointless. It would be illogical. It would be dumb to invest in those things because they're going away. Rather, we should invest in things that have a future, things that aren't going away, things that will be around later. Of course, there is one thing that will outlast every other thing. Some things that will outlast the longest lasting things in the world. God will outlast the world. God will outlast this world. So, it makes sense that we live for Him rather than for the world, and that that would be the best possible investment we could ever make because the world has no future. God literally has the future. The future for the world is judgment and death. The future for those who are with God is joy and life. So again, it makes sense that we would do everything we can to invest in God and not in the world. This brings us to our text in 1 John chapter 2. Find the Bible if you don't have one open already on your phone or there's some black pew Bibles in front of you. Find 1 John chapter 2. Last week we saw in 1 John 2, 12 through 14 that Children of God, the children of God have all these blessings like the forgiveness of sins. We know the Father. We know the Son. We're strong and we've overcome the evil one. He's digressing in these verses and in the, in the verses that follow our text for today, 15 through 17, in order to increase the confidence of Christians, to, to let us know that we are indeed children of God. And then... He shifts, so he, he encourages Christians in 12 through 14, and then he shifts in 15 through 17 to exhort Christians. And I love the, the order here. I think the order is important. Encouragement, then exhortation. Encouragement, and then exhortation. So 15 through 17 is a command. It's a straight out, black and white, do this, don't do this. It's a command. But it follows 12 through 14, which... 
was one of the richest passages I've studied in a long time. If you missed last week, look up, read the passage, and then maybe look up the sermon and dig into it a little bit on your own. So he starts with encouragement. Here's who you are, Christians. Don't forget these things. This is who you are. Now, 15 through 17, here's how you should live. His point here in 15 through 17 is very, very clear and very simple. His point is that those who know God, love God, and don't love the world. He's drawing a contrast between true believers and false teachers. True believers love God, not the world, because they know that God will outlast the world. So the main point of this text is really clear and short and simple. The main, the main point of this text is that those who love God don't love the world. That's my sermon for you this morning. Those who love God don't love the world. Those who know God and love God don't love the world. Now what John does here in 15 through 17 is he, he gives the command in verse 15, the first half of 15, and then the second half of 15 through 17, he gives two reasons for the command. So the command, don't love the world, and then reason number one, 15b through 16, reason number two, 17. That's where we're going uh, this morning. Number one, verse 15, the command. First John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. John uses the word love 51 times in 1 John, but he only tells us one time what not to love. And it's here. Do not love the world. It begs the question, what is the world? John, what, what do you mean, don't love the world? Well, the, the, wor the word, world, Greek word cosmos, is used 23 times in this letter alone. It's used all over the New Testament. It has various meanings according to its context. It can mean the natural world. It can mean the place where we live. It can mean the people who oppose God who live in the world. Or it can mean um, what we might call world systems or values and attitudes that are opposed to God. In this verse, John is using the word world in that last sense. World means here worldly attitudes or values that are opposed to God. So when he says do not love the world, he doesn't mean don't love the natural world, don't love people who live in the world, don't love this place that we live in. He's not saying that. He's saying don't love the, the world's values, the world's ambitions, the world's system. The world here refers to a system of rebellion that has set itself up against God. He's drawing a contrast, as we'll see throughout these verses, between the world and God. So it's black and white. There's God, and so when he says world, he's saying everything that opposes God. Because that's what he's doing here. He's saying there's the world and there's God. You pick. The world means, again, patterns, thought patterns, inclinations, ideas, and idols that the world accepts and promotes as true and good, but are contrary to what God says is true and good. I thought about how to best apply this or how best to illustrate this, and I could have gone in a lot of different directions. I, I chose to pick what I think is perhaps um, the, the biggest idea in our, our world, if you will, modern day 21st century America um, that would illustrate 
the world for us. So that when John says, do not love the world, we kind of can think of, oh, this is what he means, something like this. Um, I'm going to get to what's called individualism. That's where we're going to land in a minute. But let me give you examples of what that looks like. So the world in our culture shows itself in ideas like the one that says children should get to pick what gender they want to be and then their parents or doctors and counselors should agree with them. That, that's a worldly inclination or idea that is in opposition to God's idea. Or a, another, of the idea, another idea of the world is, in our culture is that marriage can be between two people of the same gender. Or that marriage is more like a contract than a covenant that can be easily entered into and exited from. Or ideas about gender. We just had a whole training class on gender. Ideas that men are king and women exist to serve men. That's a worldly idea. Or that women are king and men exist to serve women. That's a worldly idea. The idea that money and success rather than character is what really matters. The idea that some skin colors are inherently superior to others. The idea that personal happiness is the great purpose of life and that anyone or anything that keeps us from personal happiness should be thrown off. Or the idea that authority is inherently bad and should be avoided at all costs. The idea that you can do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anyone. Again, the banner over these ideas, the idea over these ideas is individualism. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor called it expressive individualism. One writer says that this phrase that Taylor coined, expressive individualism, quote, captures the largest ideological shift in America during the 20th century. It represents, this idea represents the cumulative effect of secularism's insatiable appetite to understand the self. This idea of individualism, I've just given you a bunch of examples of it, but it's really a simple idea. It says that you should be allowed to do whatever you desire and no one can stop you or tell you otherwise. That our desires are king. Our desires rule over everything else. This, this worldly value is found in slogans like be true to yourself, follow your heart, don't let anyone stand in your way, my body, my choice. These attitudes and values of expressive individualism are everywhere. They're, they're, they're not taught, by the way, generally speaking. They're not, it's not usually like someone says, hey, I'm going to teach you about expressive individualism. Here's what it means. More subtly, more generally, it's the air we breathe. It's the, it's the background noise of our culture in songs, in books, in movies, in workplaces, in politics. It's the air we breathe, not the rules we're taught. Let me give you an example of this. I just read this article in the Gospel Coalition's blog this week. 
about Disney's new rendition of The Little Mermaid. Um, Brett McCracken, he does really good movie reviews, by the way. McCracken points out how the film, uh, The New Little Mermaid, subtly provides the foundation for ideas like transgenderism without explicitly teaching transgenderism. He writes, quote, The Little Mermaid's themes have a natural appeal to the LGBT plus community. The movie versions emphasize an isolated young person who is uncomfortable in her given skin, drawn to forbidden love, and more at ease among a ragtag group of outsiders and among her own family. Ariel isn't satisfied with the boundaries and expectations placed upon her. She seeks transgression and expression on her own terms. She wants to love whomever she pleases and be whatever she pleases, even if it means manipulating her body and disappointing her father. Her desires are more determinative of her identity than her physical embodiment is, so she's willing to do whatever it takes, however costly, to resolve her inner tension. End quote. The great storytellers of our day are perpetuating ideas that seem innocuous, even inspiring. By the way, The Little Mermaid was one of my favorite movies as a kid, full disclosure, and I didn't grow up thinking that transgenderism was okay. okay? So, parents, you have to be discerning about these things. What McCracken is getting at in these words is that even if something doesn't explicitly teach something, it is, it is teaching something. It's laying groundwork, ideological groundwork for all sorts of things contrary to God's good design. So McCracken concludes that Christians, um, as Christians, we know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We also know that limits are for our good. We are not our own. And self-denial rather than self-indulgence is the path to life. So when John says, do not love the world, he's not saying nature. He's not saying don't love people who live in the world. He's not saying don't love the place you live. He's saying don't love worldly ideas like individualism that elevate something into the place of God that is not God. Ideas, inclinations, idols opposed to God. That's what he's talking about. Interestingly, look at the very last verse of 1 John. We'll get there in a few months. <laughs> Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's how he ends the letter. <laughs> no explanation given for what he's really referring to. I think he's probably referring to 2.15. Do not love the world. Do not love the world's way of thinking, feeling, acting, doing, believing. Do not love the world. But notice that in 15, John doesn't say, don't believe the world, don't think like the world, or don't do what the world does. No, he doesn't say that. He, not that he necessarily doesn't believe those things or wouldn't say those things. What he says is, don't what the world? Love. Not a true question. <laughs> don't love the world. Don't love the world. Don't love the world. We all struggle with thinking like the world, believing like the world, doing things that look more like individualism than discipleship. We probably did some of that this morning or this weekend or this week. But whether we love the world is what's important. Whether we love the world's values, whether we have embraced them and cherished them and 
want them and desire them and see them as good and lovely and true. That's what John is trying to put his finger on. Do you love the things that the world loves? Not do you struggle to think and believe and do. Of course we all do. It's not either or. Either you love the world or you're... We all struggle with loving the world. He's coming along and saying, don't let the world's affections be your affections. Our love, our loves is what's important. I'd encourage you to, by the way, a few weeks ago, Mason preached from 1 Kings 11 on King Solomon. That sermon is online. I'd encourage you to go listen to that or listen to it again. He quotes from James Smith in there who talks about how our affections are what drive us, not our reason. We're prone to think that we're, we're more reasonable than we actually are. But rather it's our loves, it's our affections, it's our desires that actually drive us. And I think he's right. I think the Bible teaches that. Our behaviors, thoughts, and beliefs are downstream from our loves. So what we do think and believe is based on what we love. So John says, don't love the world. Because if you love the world, beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that are opposed to God will follow. So he starts at the level of love. Last week I listened to Bart Barber's sermon at the annual meeting of the SBC. He pointed out how algorithms reveal our hearts. He said that our social media accounts and streaming services show us what we love. I never thought of this before. It was really interesting to think about it this way. He pointed out that what we like, what we like, reveals what we love. He wasn't saying, and I, I'm not saying that you should avoid all media. media. <clears throat> the question John has for us here is about what we love. Do we love the world? What does our... What do the the algorithms say about what we love? Do we love what the world loves or do we love what God loves? So that's that's where John starts. Do not love the world. And then he gives us two reasons for why we shouldn't love the world. Two arguments for why we shouldn't love the world. First argument, starting at the end of uh, verse 15, goes like this. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So he says the first reason why we shouldn't love the world is because Christians can't have two loves. You can't love the world and love God. He's so black and white here. It's scary how black and white he is. He says... End of verse 15 in this conditional sentence that the consequences of loving the world are that we don't have the love of God in us. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What? That's a pretty crazy statement. If we love the world, we don't have the love of God in us. I think there in 15, love of the Father is better translated love for the Father. Because again, John's point is to draw a contrast between our love for the world and our love for God. So his point is that love for the world and love for the Father are mutually exclusive. He's saying that if we're engrossed in the outlooks and perspectives of of a world that's 
rejected Jesus, then it's evident that we don't love the Father. In other words, if we love the things that we love the things that got Jesus killed, if we love the system of rebellion that murdered our Savior, how can we say that the Savior is in us, that the Father is in us? This is why James later says, do, not, uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is black and white stuff. This is a line in the sand kind of stuff. This is the kind of teaching that a lot of people hear and walk away from because they don't want to, they don't want to pick a side. John, James, even Jesus, even Jesus says we have to pick a side. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. So Jesus himself and his half-brother John, excuse me, James, and John are all saying the same thing. They're saying that following God is about picking sides. We have to decide whose values will value, Jesus' values or the world's values. We have to decide. And as I've said throughout this sermon series, and I'll keep saying it, John isn't meaning, and I'm not meaning to say that this is all binary, that, you know, if you love the world one time, then you're out, you know. If you love the world or you sinned, or you, then you're not a Christian. He's not saying that. Again, he's trying to get into our hearts and help us see what's in there driving us, what affections are ruling our lives. Now he expands in verse 16, he expands on what he means by the things in the world. Did you see 15? He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. Well, what does he mean by things in the world? 16, all that is in the world, he tells us, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what do these, these, these three things mean? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in... Your translation might say pride in life or pride in possessions. I think the better translation is pride in possessions. What do these, things three, these three things mean? Well, the desires of our flesh are the desires inside of us, of our fallen and sinful nature. Flesh, generally, in the New Testament, refers to our sinful nature that's opposed to God. The things that we want that we shouldn't want. So, these are the desires that are driven by the world's way of thinking. The, the kind of desires in us that the world would say, that's okay, that's good, pursue that, think that, follow that out. My body, my choice, follow your heart, those kind of things. John doesn't mean to say that all desires are bad. He's not saying all desires are bad. Paul literally says that if you aspire to the office of overseer, you desire a noble task. So desires to serve the church, for example, are good. Desires for friendship and companionship are good and God-given. Desires for food and drink and sex and sleep are good desires. Those aren't evil desires. Those are good desires. Those aren't the kinds of things John's talking about. He's talking about internal cravings for sinful things, for things we want but haven't been authorized by God to have. 
These desires, these desires of the flesh are temptations that assault us from within. Things that stir us up in unholy ways. Now, then he says the desires of the eyes. So if desires of the flesh are internal, internally motivated, then desires of the eyes come to us externally. Temptations that, ex- that assault us from without, not within. It's been said that our eyes are inch-long openings on our face that cause so much trouble. <laughs> inch-long openings on our face that cause so much trouble. The temptation of our eye, eyes is to be captivated by the outward show of things. John's saying that our eyes are drawn to or desire things that aren't good for us. Things that the world says are good, but that God says aren't good. These desires are activated by what we see. They often, not always, they often lead to covetousness, wanting what someone has, Envy, which is slightly different, it's not only wanting what someone has, but despising the other person for having it. This, these desires of the eyes can hinder contentment in God. How many times do we jump on social media only to quickly find ourselves discouraged because someone else has something we don't? They have a relationship, they have a trip, they have a thing, they have a kid, they have a whatever they have, and we want that thing, and so... We're discouraged. What we put in front of our eyes does something to our hearts, is the point. What goes into our eyes does something inside of us. Jesus said this plainly, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Remember Eve, it says in Genesis, Eve saw the forbidden forbidden fruit as pleasing to the eye. And David, David, King David saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And sinful desires were activated in Eve and David and me and you that culminate in destruction. So we have here, we have internal desires, desires of the flesh, externally motivated desires, desires of the eyes. And then finally, Pride in possessions or pride in life. I think this refers to our boasting and our, our life in general, which really is what we have and what we do. Pride is boasting in what we have and what we do. You may say, well, I don't really do that. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're not that obnoxious person who goes around beating your chest, talking about how awesome you are. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. But I would argue that we all do this. We just do it undercover, internally, usually, not externally. We take pride in what we have and what we do. We compare ourselves to others and elevate ourselves above others based on what we have or what we do. And what we're doing in those moments is really simple. We're looking to other things or things other than God for validation. We're looking to titles, possessions, positions, appearance, skills to establish our value. We believe the lie that our value is based on our performance, our possessions, our skills, our title. 
This is one reason why we'll work our hands to the bone to find our validation in anything but God. We've got to be super mom or super dad or super church member or super worker. We have to be awesome at everything. And we don't boast with our lips, but inside we are desperate for people to validate us because we aren't content with the validation that we've received already from God. And this leads to exhaustion. It suffocates our ability to truly love people. Think of it. If you're always concerned with your performance and your validation and all you know, your stuff, all, then you're not free to actually see people and love them and, and, and delight in them and engage them. As I said last week, God never ties our value to our performance. God says that our value is in Him. Not in our performance, not in our stuff, not in our title. <clears throat> Fred Rogers, also known as Mr. Rogers, um, had a picture in his office with a quote that said, What is essential is invisible to the eyes. Isn't that good? What is essential is invisible to the eyes. That's really biblical, by the way, 2 Corinthians 4. <clears throat> um, so we don't look to um, worldly things, physical things, because it's uh, eternal things are invisible. Eternal things are invisible. That's all he's saying. The most important things about you are things you can't see. And this, is, this is easy to believe intellectually, but I don't think many of us will really believe this until things, some things are stripped away. And I'm not saying I hope this for you, I want this for you, I, 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 I really don't. But sometimes God has to strip things away from you. A relationship, a job, financial security, whatever it is. Where you live, your future plans. Sometimes things have to be stripped away for us to finally, finally figure out what's actually essential. I think it's C.S. Lewis who says that God screams to us through pain. He screams to us through pain. I believe that. The most important things about us are things we can't see, things that God has said are true no matter what's going on around us or in us. So he says, don't boast in your stuff, in your life, in who you are and who you know and what you can do and your family and your house. Don't boast in that stuff. That's what the world does. John is saying that's the way the world thinks. That's from the world. That's not from God. Of course, one of the things that we all struggle with is, is knowing whether we do any of it. We might think, well, yeah, you know, I probably do some of this stuff. I'm probably guilty of some of this here and there. How do I really know if I'm really doing this, though? Well, the Lord has given us gifts, the Word, the Spirit, and the church. I would encourage you. Be really honest with people, maybe even this week, maybe at your small group or over coffee. What kinds of desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, or pride and possessions are you wrestling with, do you struggle with often? Talk to someone about that. Verbalize that. We need help to see where we're more like the world and less like God. So that's, a, that's the first reason. Don't love the world. Because you can't have two loves. You can't say you love God and love the world too. That's his first argument. Second argument, verse 17. 
goes like this. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the second reason why John says we shouldn't love the world is because eternal things are more important than temporal things. Loving the world is not a good investment because the world is passing away. Look back up at chapter 2, verse 8. He's already used this language. Verse 8, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's telling us that the new world is already making its entrance in Jesus and in his people because of all that God set in motion in the coming of Jesus, the world's days are number, number. They're literally passing away. The world is dying. Everything antithetical to God and His ways are doomed. There's no future, therefore, in worldliness. Loving what the world loves is a bad investment because the world has no future. But did you see the promise at the end of verse 17? Did you see the promise? But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. This may sound like, hey, if you do good stuff, you'll get to go to heaven. But Jesus said in the Gospels, whoever does my will, whoever does God's will is my brother, my mother, my father, my sister. He's saying, if you, you're only rightly related to me if you're obeying, if you're obeying God. John summarizes this more clearly in chapter 3, verse 23. First John, he says, This is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So what does God want us to do? What is God's will? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you want to live forever, we should know what's the will of God. Well, chapter 3, 23 says we should believe in the Son and love one another. And that's the opposite of what the world does. The world doesn't believe in the Son and doesn't love one another. Loving the world means letting the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions dominate us. It means finding our validation in what we have and what we do rather than who we are in Christ. But loving God means trusting in His Son, looking away from ourselves, looking to someone else for validation, for acceptance, for love, and loving His people. Loving God means finding our validation in what God says about us, not in our performance, and in loving the people that God loves. The world is passing away along with its desires. Now, <clears throat> this is huge because how often this week have you heard anyone say on any of the th stuff you listen to or read or watch, has anyone said anything remotely close to, hey, um, the world's passing away? <laughs> no. The subtle lie of the world is that the world will be here forever, but it won't. It won't. We're passing through a world that's passing away. John says we shouldn't love the world because the next world is far more important than this one. John is telling us to love what will last. To love what will last. We shouldn't love the system of rebellion that this world is. Don't love the world because it's passing away. Don't love the world because if you love the world, then you don't have the love of the Father in you. But notice he doesn't say, again, he doesn't say don't love the people in the world. He says don't love the world, the system of rebellion. He doesn't say we shouldn't love the rebels who live in the system. Think of it. We're, we're rebels 
too. We, we were and in some ways still are part of the system that's opposed to God. Jesus is the only reason why we're not still a rebel. In mercy, He rescued out of, out of the darkness of the world, out of death, out of Satan's grip. He's bringing us into His kingdom, into His world. So we can go, we can go into the world We can see the world with eyes of mercy, not eyes of self-righteousness. We can see the world with grace and love and kindness and patience and not judgment and conceit because we know that we also are rebels. We also have offended the God who made us, that we are rebels to the core. And the only reason reason we will outlive this world is because of God's kindness to us. So we can go to a world full of rebels because we know the Father's love. And we know that those rebels we're going to need more than anything else the love of the Father. So we can live in this world but not be of this world. We can love what will last because God has loved us and His love will last. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we move to the, supper, to the Lord's Supper, as we move to the table, as we consider Jesus' broken body and shed blood, <clears throat> Lord, help us to think carefully about where we are this morning. If we are with Christ, remind us of that, assure us of that, encourage us in that. If we are still in the world, show us that, give us eyes to see where we are. We all struggle. We, we all struggle. Every day we're pulled, almost like gravity just pulls us down into the world's values and attitudes and inclinations and idols. We're so grateful for the cross that cleanses us from all our sins. But if we are part of the world at, at an affectional level, at a love level, if we love this world more than we love God, Please help us to see that. Holy Spirit, help us to see where we are this morning as we approach the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.